You're listening to There, There, Episode 1, The Narrator. You don't know this, but they're there. The voices. At first, they come to you as whispers, soft as a gentle breeze. When you learn to quiet your mind, you can hear them, and then they never leave. And as soon as you've learned to quiet your mind, you'll want to unlearn it so that the noises around you come back to block them out. Because you really didn't want to hear them in the first place, and you certainly don't want to hear what they have to say. But they are there. They always were, always in existence. And I will tell you what they tell me as precisely as I can, no matter what they have to say. They will tell me all about you when your time comes, and it will, they assure me. If you heard their voices, then you would know their stories. They are mine and they are yours, and therefore we are bound to tell them. I will tell you their stories because I hear the voices, and when you are ready to listen, you will hear them too. And then you will tell their stories, but first you must tell yours. It is only when you have told your story will you be able to tell theirs. That is the way it works, I think. I do not exactly know why, but that is the way it was for me, so I'll assume that is the way it will work for you too. And so I must begin by telling you my story. I will tell you mine, and then I will tell you yours. That is if you will let me, if you will listen. You will think me odd at first, or the things I tell you to be coincidence or even happenstance. But coincidence will dissipate, and the truth will appear through the mist of its demise. So what is my story? Why are we here? Where does it begin? That is what this is about, right? In my self-indulgent quest, in my need for self-importance? But I can tell you, though, my life has not just been one story. No one's is. Where I am an anthology of stories, and sometimes I am the main character, and sometimes not reduced to the sidekick or the comic relief. We have no control over this. We are not the authors of our own story as much as we'd like to think. You may think me mad, and I understand that. It is often the case when someone speaks as I do, when someone speaks in ways that scare us or make us feel uncomfortable. I speak both to scare you and to make you feel uncomfortable. It is during these times in our fear and our discomfort that we are most apt to learn. And that is when we experience growth. It is called cognitive disequilibrium, and it is when true learning occurs. I won't get into Piaget because it'll seem pretentious. You'll just have to take my word. Or maybe I'm simply in the middle of a nervous breakdown. That's what you'd like to think. Honestly, that's what I'd like to think too sometimes, but that would be a very superficial analysis. It would explain things in a way that we could understand, in a way that would be comprehensible in a world that demands logic, linear comprehension. But I'm sorry I can't offer that to you or to me. Sometimes there is logic hidden in a logic and comprehension in the incomprehensible, as we will see. You think that I haven't been called crazy before, or odd, or weird, or strange? The words used to hurt at first, like when I was in school, when I was young. They used to pick on me because I was younger, smarter, darker, introverted, whatever otherness they could identify. So they would pick on me because I was different than them. It never occurred to them that they were different. They were the others, as time would tell for all of us. And so the other kids would beat me up for my otherness and take whatever they could from me. My money, my pencils, my lunch, my shoes, anything I tangibly possessed, but they could never take away the things that were intangible. My sense of self, my sense of purpose, my sense of thought, my sense of awareness, things I possessed even if I didn't know it at the time. It was unbeknownst to me, and maybe that's why they couldn't take it away. Eventually, I fought back. Whether it was one or three of them, I fought back. And at times I fought back before a fight even broke out. I sensed it. I smelled it in the air. And it seemed like I even initiated a fight or two or three, but I knew better. It was brewing. And so I attacked enough to be deemed the aggressor, enough to keep most of them away from me. 
It reinforced my introversion and need to be away from people. That seems ironic now. But that often meant that everyone else stayed away from me. And maybe that's why I heard the voices sooner than you, because there was less sound in my life. And if your mind is quiet enough through hardship or choice, then the voices are no longer in the background. They become as clear as if a person is sitting next to you. And they do not want to hurt you or take away from you like everyone else. They just want to be heard and they just want your help. Do you believe me yet? Probably not, but that's okay because you're probably not ready yet. And that's okay too. There's no rush in the grand scheme of things. And although it seems like time is finite, you will learn that it is not. Please, you must suspend your disbelief at what I'm saying to you. Suspend the thoughts. How can he see the voices that he sees? Wait, that's not right. I don't see the voices, do I? It's confusing at times. I don't offer an explanation as to how it happens or even why it happens. I just know that it happens, but it is for a selfish means, if self-preservation is selfish. I mean, after all, it's either him or me, and I'd rather it be him. But now I'm going too fast, too far ahead of the narrative. You need more exposition, and trust me, there are times when exposition is an utmost necessity. I saw the voices in my head, and one day the voices appeared to me, and it was then that he appeared. And I watch for him, and I watch for you too, and we'll see both of you again. There are two of us, if you'll permit me to go ahead in the narrative. Like maybe we are being herded. And I think of Noah, like we're all waiting for the catastrophe. Isn't it time for a great disaster to remind us of our insignificance? Isn't it time for us to be put in our place again? A system reset? Maybe he is behind all of this, telling Noah to herd us into the ark before the storm of all storms, the Savior in our destruction. So in pairs we seek salvation, pairs yet opposites, like David and Goliath, God and Lucifer, heaven and hell, and the rest of the biblical cliches. There are two of us. That much I know, whether you believe me or not, is irrelevant. I've seen him, my other. And there might be two of you too. Time will tell. He's out there and I will find him. And if I find him, then I will know that we are not alone. And then you must find yours before she finds you. I know I sound fragmented, and that's because when I thought it was whole, I found that it was not. None of us are. I should just start off at the beginning by telling you a little bit about myself. Who am I? That's the question, right? Why should you listen to me right now at this moment instead of walking away like so many others before you? If you do, I get it. I'm used to it. But it's also a defense mechanism, right? What I'm telling you makes you feel uncomfortable, and you'd rather not feel that way. Walking away preserves your safety, even if it really doesn't, because I know better. None of us are safe. Before all this began, I was a behaviorist by trade, as a consultant. That means I study behavior, but it is more than that. It means I can change behavior through scientifically proven means, especially behavior people don't want, like smokers and overeaters. I've worked for many companies trying to increase productivity, like a certain computer software company that I cannot name because of the NDA. I've also worked for some sports teams in the MLB and NFL. Can't name teams, though. What organization is trying to be better than the rest, trying to get more from their people so that they're the best they can be? And they became more successful, of course, because the science dictated that it would. It's like, in my job, I'm God, and I can make them do things that I want them to do. But it's not like that. It's an altruistic job that requires benevolence. It's important that you know that I am benevolent, even if I do things that seem contrary. Any malevolence on my part just seems malevolent, but it is not, I assure you. I was always good at watching people, not in a creepy way, most of the time. I'm an introvert, which means I don't like interacting with people, but I do like watching people. I like to see what they do and what they say and hypothesize on why they do that. It really is a cornerstone of behaviorism even before I studied it explicitly. 
Even as a child, I watched people. My mom would take me to the grocery store and I would watch. And people ignored me because I was a kid. They automatically thought that just because I was smaller than them that I was unimportant. And so I was invisible. It benefited me because I could watch them and they didn't see me. As I got older and taller, they still ignored me and I came to the realization that they ignored me because I was still invisible, insignificant to them in the hierarchy of their lives. So why should they pay attention to me? And so they didn't, and that may be my ultimate weapon in this war. I use the word war with intentionality. That's what it is, I think, the war of all wars, and my invisibility is my superpower. It allowed me to make the discovery, as you will see, that is, if you will permit me. Periphery is something that is intentional. It is something that our brain defines for us so that we aren't overwhelmed with information. It is a shield that has evolved in our fight-or-flight conditioning. Things that demand our attention are brought to the forefront of our senses, especially our vision. Everything else is reduced to our periphery, background fuzz, because our brain deems it unimportant. If we are in danger, then we focus on the immediate threat. Nothing else matters but this threat because our life depends on it. What our brain doesn't take into account is that the threat is based on perception, a perceived threat. What may be a threat may not be an actual threat at all. And if we are focused on a perceived threat, then an actual threat may be undetected until it is too late. Pack animals have figured this out through generations of evolution so that they work in unison. The pack have one act as a perceived threat so that the prey focuses on one animal in front of it without ever realizing that the actual threats have attacked at each side. It is only when it is being feasted upon that it realizes what has happened. I have learned, though, that periphery can be adjusted. It can be reduced so that we are paying attention to many elements simultaneously, so that we are cognizant of many things around us all at once, like observers of a snow globe, omniscient, godlike. It does take training, but periphery can be reduced or eliminated. After all, activity in the periphery has become a part of my job because I am required to observe people, and fight or flight isn't applicable anymore. Of course, if I was in any real danger, then all bets would be off. The key to watching people is that they can't know you're watching them because it would skew your data. Reactivity, that's what it's called. It's when a person knows you're watching them so they behave differently. In essence, they are on their best behavior, and that's not what you want. You want them at their worst behavior to get baseline data. That's what I do. I watch them, and I'm most effective hiding in their periphery when I don't register in their immediacy. And that means I have to observe them in my periphery. People are always so busy focusing on their immediacy that they ignore the periphery, and it is there that the most important things may pass by undetected, unnoticed. Unless we choose to notice, unless we take the time to stop moving forward and pay attention to the things in the periphery that may be the most important things in our lives, and unless we stop to notice, they will always be fuzzy, just out of focus, and these things will be reduced to nothingness, or they will kill us. That first time when I saw you, I saw me, like a mirror yet not. It was subtle at first, but now I know better. I saw you. I didn't notice at first. I walked around the world without even noticing you. Like people never noticing me, I suppose. And then it happened, out of the corner of my eye. I left the coffee shop by my apartment that morning on my way to work, in a way that could not have been happenstance. After all, every morning I always brewed my own coffee. But that morning the machine wouldn't work. I didn't realize that water created hard water buildup. I should have been running vinegar and water or a descaler through the machine, something to erode the hard water buildup, but I didn't. And so it didn't work that morning. I was left with no choice. It was the coffee shop down the street, and it was nothing special, a drip with half and half and turbinado. I walked down the street and passed the alley. That's the first time I saw you, out of the corner of my eye. Isn't that the way it always is? 
out of the corner of our eyes, the corner of our minds, there but not. There in the alley, in my periphery, was a broken mirror that stood leaning against a commercial garbage bin, and there was a glimmer that somehow existed within a shadow. That was you. There was a smell ever so slight, maybe even slighter because of the aroma of the freshly brewed coffee. Or maybe I dismissed it when I passed the alley. It smelled like warm, wet bread. And that is when I heard the voice for the first time, or more accurately, the first voice for the first time. I see you. Do you see me? It faintly registered as subconscious at the time, and I continued on my way to work. That's the first time I saw you, and the first time I heard the voice. I couldn't say much about it, but I knew that you were there. I felt you as I'm sure you felt me. I assumed the connection must have been there for you too, but I couldn't say for sure. I wish I could say more about that monumental moment, as it would change our lives forever. I wish I can give you the details, but the truth of the matter is that I can't. I enjoyed my cup of coffee as I walked to work, and that extraordinary moment was ordinary at the time. Sometimes moments only become extraordinary when we have learned of their importance, and typically that does not happen until many moments later. This was one of them. The broken mirror, the glimmer within the shadow, the smell of warm wet bread, the voice, all insignificant at the time. I'm not so sure of the second time I saw you. It may have been in a dream. Not quite in a dream, but the fluid moment between consciousness and unconsciousness as you lie in bed. You are aware that you are in bed, but you are also aware that you are dreaming. Some refer to it as sleep paralysis, awake yet not. Paralyzed by the thoughts of your mind, or better yet, the thoughts of your mind control your entirety. I see you. Do you see me? Did you see yourself in the mirror? I was in my room and it was nighttime. I was exhausted from the day's work that bled into the night, as work often does. I lie in bed in the dark and thought about the work that tomorrow would bring. I was good at what I did. I obsessed about what I did, and I guess that is why I was good at it. Observe, collect data, observe more, plan, administer treatment, observe, record data, analyze. Success was determined through observation and data collection. That is why I was good at discovering you, even though it seemed that you may have discovered me first in my room that night. As the thoughts became less focused, my mind took those thoughts and tried to carry them into my dreams. And then there was that smell, that smell that was familiar and strange at the same time, that warm, wet bread, a smell that had no business being in my room, as distinct as a fingerprint, and that is how I knew you were near. That was a smell in the alley that competed with the freshly brewed coffee that morning on my way to work, when my coffee maker decided not to work. In that delicate state of awake yet not, I smelled you again. You were in the corner of my room, awaiting in the shadows. I see you. Do you see me? Do you see yourself in the mirror? I did. I saw you in the mirror. That's why I broke it, because there shouldn't be two of us. Why are we here? Why is he doing this to us? Why are you doing this to me? What do you want from me? I will not let you hurt me. Be warned. I tried to reason that you weren't there because there was no way that you could have been there. But over time, there was no way to reason that you weren't there. This was proof that you found out about me before I found out about you, but that didn't last for long. When I awoke, I knew one thing. I had to find you, him, if it all existed outside of my mind. I apologize for the pronoun confusion. Understand that it confuses me too. Sometimes I cannot separate me from you, from him, from Noah. Maybe we are all me. Time will tell. I knew I wasn't safe, and I looked around my apartment for signs that you were there something that had been moved, a lock that had been tampered with. But there was nothing, so I looked for something else, anything I could carry with me. I opened the drawer in the kitchen. 
I couldn't carry a knife with me. It wasn't inconspicuous enough. I couldn't justify it. And so I opened another drawer. A spoon offered little to no protection. The next drawer was spatulas and whisks. No good. So I went to the last drawer, that one drawer in the corner where miscellany resided. And that's when I saw it, the screwdriver. I could use this, and more importantly, I could explain this. I needed to tighten this or replace that at the office. I could even work it into my training as a metaphor. Be the screwdriver of your organization. Tighten the loose screws. It practically wrote itself into my presentation. I looked at the screwdriver. The steel was at least three inches. I could insert this into the base of your skull and that would be the end of you. Us. Him. The screwdriver was just the thing I needed and the color spoke to me. The handle alternated red and black. Red and black as a friend of Jack. Wasn't that the saying? Or was it yellow and black as a friend of Jack? Or red and yellow can kill a fellow? Or black and yellow can kill a fellow? I guess it didn't matter because the screwdriver handle didn't even have yellow on it, so I was safe. If I was a fellow. I took it and placed it in my pocket and was already working it into my next presentation. Get rid of your loose screws. I held onto the handle in my pocket, feeling the smoothness of the plastic. I ran my finger down one of the grooves back and forth as I rode the cap to work. I lowered the window, and there it was. Stop, it's him. There he is. Don't you smell him? Take a deep breath. This is it. Get him before he gets you. You have no choice. I'm sorry, but you don't. I hopped out of the cab when the driver hit a red light, throwing money at him and moving cautiously toward the scent of that sweetly strange, warm, wet bread. It didn't take long to catch up to the scent. I saw him first this time. My broken mirror moved across the street. There was nothing special about him, and he didn't stand out, so I guess that meant neither did I, and so I followed on the opposite side of the street. After a few blocks, he entered an apartment complex. I crossed the street, and the car horns barely registered because they were not actual threats. They didn't even register my periphery because I knew where the real threat lie. I wasn't going to be an antelope or a zebra. I'm a lion. I will spare you the details to not further implicate you in case of a subpoena. The time passed so that it was late at night. I stood in the shadows of his room this time. It was me. I was the watcher while you lie there, so vulnerable as I was not too long ago. I was in control now, and it was he that had to think if I was really in the room tomorrow morning, that is, if I let him survive the night. I found myself feeling the smooth, cool grooves of the screwdriver. Red and black as a friend of Jack. I'm a heavy sleeper once I get going, so I knew he'd be the same, and he snored as loud as I did and so I hid in the darkness of his room. I knew it'd be dark because I could never sleep in a room with any light, so I took measure to make sure no light entered my bedroom, so I purchased high-quality blackout curtains. Apparently, he was the same. There were never any LED clocks. It was as dark as an apartment in the city could be, and I stared at him. He slept on the left side of his bed, as I did. He had a ceiling fan, and he slept with three pillows, as I did. I'm not sure why I followed him home, and I'm not sure why I was in his bedroom, but I stood quietly, and then I crouched quietly for what seemed like hours. And then I moved closer and looked at him, his features hidden in the darkness of his room, but it was like looking in a black mirror, our lives intertwined for the now. I left the room and exited his apartment, and I seldom returned to my own. After all, we knew about each other, and we had such easy access to one another. I couldn't go back to living the same way. If he thought as I did, then neither one of us could be sure. Neither one of us could be safe. How could this have happened? Where do we veer off? Are we the same? Are we twins separated at birth because we are too important to be kept together? 
My mother never mentioned anything to me, not even when she took ill and died last year. I should have taken a DNA sample. I could have had it tested. Would we be related? Why would we be separated? Where is the threat? Is it Noah? Could he really be the one behind all this? And so I had to change my behavior, my pattern of doing things. I went home because I knew he was asleep and I gathered the necessities. Clothes for a few days, toiletries, electronics. I checked into a hotel. I thought about running away. I thought about leaving the city and never returning, but that wouldn't be the end of it. He would always exist, and so I wasn't safe. I lie in this strange bed thinking, he was there, I was here. Were we really the same? And if so, what does that really mean? Could we really exist without fear? Does there have to be only one of us? Could it be just a genetic coincidence, a coding error in the machinery of humankind? Can God make mistakes, or was this his intentionality? I thought of that night when he was in my room, the smell, the ever-so-slight breath on my neck so that the hairs raised in response but ultimately dismissed, the vulnerability that I was only subconsciously aware of. He was there and he could have ended it so that there was only one of us. Maybe that was the point. Maybe he wanted to show me that he was there and that he could have killed me but didn't because he was kind. Or maybe he could have killed me and that was the point. I could kill you if I want. Remember that. It wasn't altruism. It was a threat, a promise. I never knew what you were, even if I accepted who you were. But there was always an uneasiness about knowing you were out there, and I didn't know what you wanted from me, and so I feared you. That's what we do, isn't it? That's our behavior as humans. We fear what we do not understand. And when we fear, we are most prone to react, and when we react, it is in self-preservation. And self-preservation is our justification for violence. I rarely went back to my apartment, and when I did, it was in unpredictable patterns, nothing discernible to someone waiting for me. But there were times I went to my apartment with intent to observe and record the data, hoping to record nothing but knowing the reality. I would wait for him and he would show up in the hour window from 9 to 10 in the evening, intentional, not looking lost or whimsical, but driven. He would enter my building, my building, and even address my cohabitants, my neighbors. He would respond to my name and one time I even caught him talking with the woman who lived on my floor, 403. They laughed as they entered the building. I observed him because I promised myself that I would never let him be the observer anymore. And as I saw him, I couldn't help but feel like I was the one being watched by him, by Noah, by God, by the devil. Maybe all of them simultaneously, like I was the one in the snow globe, and they shook it at their will to shake my very soul. It was this last time I saw his intent after laughing it up with 403, but this time he didn't exit the building within the hour. And so I waited and I observed and I waited to record some shred of data. He eventually exited the building as day broke, but this time he stopped and looked up towards my window, or was it 403's? And that is when I saw it. He reached for something in his pocket and removed it. Although I couldn't see definitively what it was as he clutched it, I could see it glimmer in the morning light, and he walked off. And I followed, not caring about data anymore. I see you. I see me. Like a mirror, broken or not. But there is no more periphery. There is just you. There is just me. As you crossed the alleyway, I decided to grab you. I reached through our mirror until you became tangible. It was the only thing I could do, and I knew that if I hadn't grabbed you first, then you most certainly would have grabbed me, so I did the only logical thing. I held you as I forced you into the alleyway. At first you didn't resist, and when you did, I pushed you away violently. You crashed into the cracked mirror that still stood against the garbage bin. I ran to meet you and held you tight again, a deep, intimate embrace, like I had never held anyone before because it was you, and it was me, and it was us. You smiled, and I met your smile with a smile of my own. 
We were together at last with no disillusions, no words ever passing between us. And I drove it in. I turned a loose screw and I kept turning and turning until I could turn it no more. As the smile on my face grew wider and wider still. You tried to fall to the ground, but it held you in place in my arms where you belonged. I felt the weight of your body and pulled you closer. And that was the first time I saw you. The first time I really saw you. You were helpless. You were in pain. And the weight of your body became too much for me, so I followed you to the ground on top of the broken mirror fragments and I retreated. You reached out to me for help with your hand extended, with your fingers begging me to touch you, but I couldn't reach back. I couldn't. That would mean that we were connected and we really were not. After all, you'd rather be the one standing over me instead of the other way around. The pool of blood began to gather around your stomach, and no matter how hard I tried not to, I looked in your eyes and I saw the pain. I was compelled to look in those eyes until I could stand it no more. I didn't want to be the last thing you saw as you died, as we died. I wanted to run away, but I didn't want you to die alone. We were connected no matter what, no matter what I thought, and so I looked away. I looked away from your eyes in an act of true cowardice, and that's when I saw it. I didn't want to see it at first, but it was there, and it stared back at me with an intensity that I will never forget. The periphery was shattered, was no more. It was all. I wish I could reduce it back to the periphery that it should have been, but I couldn't. The pool of blood continued to flow, and it began to flow over a piece of broken mirror. And that's when I saw it for the first time. In the mirror piece that was being overtaken by the pool of your blood, I saw my reflection. It was there as it always was. Me. The truest me. Distorted. Evil. I was an abomination of your image, the same yet not. And I could not unsee the image reflected in the mirror, nor the blood that overtook it. And I knew what I had done to you, and who you were, and who I was. And now there is only one of us that would exist in the world, and I am afraid. I have ruined Noah's plan for us, and he will be angry with me. And even the screwdriver that you held in your hand, that was exactly like mine, provided no comfort, no innocence to my guilt. Red and black is a friend of Jack. Am I Jack? Are you Jack? We both can't be Jack. When I turned away from my reflection back to you, you were dead. But now there was someone else in my periphery. But he was no longer periphery. Had he been there the whole time? Was this Noah? He was there and I could see him vanish in the distance, running in a way that alternated between bipedal and quadruped. And so I left you and gave chase to him because he knew more than I did and I needed to know. I ran harder than I had ever run before, keeping my eye on him, and he crossed the early morning street. And that is when I first met you and I imagined that this was also not happenstance. For we collided so hard that I thought I had killed you instantaneously as we both fell to the ground. In my haze, I tried to keep him in my eyeline, and I could swear that I saw him in the alleyway on the opposite side of the street, scurrying up the side of a building. When I turned back in the other direction to see what I had just done, the alley was empty of the body I had just laid down, gone. And so was the smell, and so I turned to the only smell there was. I looked at you, and your eyes were delicate and quivering, and there was a deep somberness of them that exceeded the pain I had just caused you. And there we lie on the street looking at each other for something that the other did not possess, but we were entranced. And that was when I heard your voice, yet you did not speak. Help me. That's when I knew you were about to tell me your story, 